All right, let's go ahead and get started. Um, I'm going to give several things. I'm going to complete a couple deals from that we didn't get to, which I think are significant, why the lamb in chapter 5 has seven horns and seven eyes, um, which is actually significant. And uh, then we're going to jump into a quick overview of where we're at right now in the book of Revelation. We're going to talk to certain, uh, we're going to speak to certain issues with regards to chronology and timing and why things are uh, important. I still have people that are trying to figure out how everything falls into an order. Let me suggest to you guys, don't try to figure out when and how these things occur. Because the moment that you start trying to figure out in what order they fall is the moment that you fall into the dispensational and the premillennial historical trap of looking for specific events that trigger your understanding of where we fall in the timeline. Let me just say to you real quick, that is not the point of Revelation. Revelation is not given to you to find out where you're at in the course of history. It's given to you so that you understand how to overcome during the church age and what will be happening to you. I was listening to several teachers this weekend. I just, sometimes I get bored and I flip through like all the Christian channels. And if, if you've ever noticed that most of the Christian channels are uh, premillennial dispensationalists, Wesleyan, TVN, all of those are. And I'm not poo-pooing that, I'm just saying that they are. And whenever they do a teaching on Revelation, it's always from that perspective. And they always want to say, okay, so where does that put us in the course of events? We're right at the door, right at... And I always want to say, you've been right at the door for 2,000 years. There's nothing that needs to happen before Christ returns. That's why the apostles were saying it could happen any day. That was first century Christians. So... This notion that we have to try and figure out the chronology of when this particular thing ties off with this and blah, 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 is a dangerous position to be in. Understand what we're talking about here is the condition of the world during the church age and the things that will occur by God's judgment upon the city of man as it opposes the city of God. What we see is a conflict of two kingdoms, a usurper who has stepped in to take over what God has established as his own. And there is, by definition of that, a conflict. Do all of you understand that the preaching of the gospel is a violent act? Do you realize that? That when you speak to somebody the goodness of Christ, you are actually opposing a spiritual force. It is a violent act. That's what Jesus meant when he said, violent men take the kingdom by force. Because it is, it is a violent act. So what we're seeing in Revelation is this violence that occurs because of the, uh, the inherent violence that occurs because of a conflict that, that goes back all the way to the garden. That at Christ's ascension, he began to move toward its culmination. Okay, so that's where we're at. And what we're going to speak to today is how a lot of these things, like the seals, what the seals are, why they're important, and how the trumpets and bowls actually fit into those things, and how, in fact, they all might be running concurrently. Not, we're not waiting for, and I'll tell you why we wait for this. We look at some of the, especially the bowls, 
where things come up with lion's manes and they have a tail like a scorpion, or the sun burns men. And we say, well, that hasn't happened yet. Or we, don't, we haven't seen any weird creatures like that. Or we don't see any of this kind of stuff that's being said. Well, we don't in America. Or we may not in America. But there may be those things that are happening. And again, a lot of this stuff is an escalation. It gets worse and worse and worse, which we'll talk about in a little bit. So I wanted to, I want to put to rest, and we'll talk a little bit about this. So the first thing we're going to do is we're going to give an overview of where we're at in the, in, in the, in the book of Revelation and how this is all going to play in. So let me see. Let me get where I want to be. I got two, three documents working here. So give me a second. All right, so we're going to get to chapter 6 in just a second. I'm going to conclude chapter 5, but I want to give us a uh, position. So where are we at so far? What have we discussed so far? We've discussed Revelations 1 through 5. And what have we seen during 1 through 5? What are the, what are the high points of, of our discussion? What's the first thing that we saw? Yeah, but... Chapter 1 specifically points to what? What is chapter 1 all about? Who is the main focus of chapter 1? Christ. The resurrected, ascended, reigning, all-powerful Christ who is among His church. That's the very first picture that we're given. So chapter 1 is Christ. Christ in ascended glory Oop, glory uh, among his church and then we move right into what chapters 2 and 3 and this is the churches now there are seven of them what does this depict the completeness of the church or the church as a whole and this is connected to, so we're going to do this, and we're going to go church as a whole. Okay? So what, what is, uh, what is um, what's the point here? The point here is to show that, that Jesus is among His church. He knows the church intimately. He knows the different struggles that are confronting the church. But he also brings judgment. Now, we're going to notice something that's very key here. What's the difference between the judgment of Jesus among the church and the judgment of Jesus upon the world? Because what we're about to see is the judgment of Christ on the world. Do you notice a difference between the way that Christ works with the church and the way that Christ will be working with the world? Do you notice a difference? It's redemptive. It's restorative. I find that many Bible commentators want to try and put the restorative attribute of God into, um, into God's dealings with the nations and Lucifer and, thing, and, and the beast and all of this other stuff. There is no restorative judgment of God upon the beast. God is not trying to save the beast because the beast doesn't represent a person. God is trying to, God's intention is to eradicate everything that opposes him, to subject all that is against him under his feet, all of his enemies, right? So there's a definite distinction and a definite, definite denture. Now, that's not to say that there's not a restorative 
issue, but there is several scriptures that says, let those who are going to serve God continue to do good, continue to do good, and let those that are not going to do good or to live in unrighteousness continue to live in unrighteousness. That's a statement that's made in Revelation. That's also a statement that's made in one of the, uh, the Old Testament prophets. The idea being that it's already been cast, it's already been stated. Okay, so there's going to be a definite difference that we see here between God's judgment or Christ's judgment back to the church and what we're going to see coming in chapter 6 and on. There's a difference in God's tenor of His judgment. So God's judgment is redemptive. We have a hard time understanding that God actually will draw a line in the sand. We want to say that God is benevolent forever. But there is a space, and we saw it throughout the Old Testament, where God's, God reaches a point where He says, okay, you've now stepped over the line. Now everything that I've told you is going to happen as judgment is now happening. So we're, we're going to talk about the two sides of the same coin. God's judgment and God's redemption are both active in the book of Revelation, and both of them have to do with the opening of the scroll. Okay, So... See this, chapters 2 and 3 is the church as a whole. Then we go, go immediately into what? All right? Oh, let me end, end with this. In the, at the end of the, the chapters with the church, there are two things that are said. What? To him who overcomes and he who has an ear. Okay, so the, the first statement will be, will be applicable to chapters Four and five. Specifically, he who has an ear will be will be um, very specific to chapters six and following. He who has an ear, parable. That's par- par- parabolic language. Jesus continued to say that it is given to some to hear. Uh, it is given to some. The mysteries of the kingdom of God are given to some in parables, but to you it's given. To know, right? So, those who have an ear. So, this idea of a parable. So, God is going uh, to show later in chapter 6 and following. But to him who overcomes has direct reference back to or forward to verses chapters five, uh, 4 and 5. And what do we see in chapters 4 and 5? We see a single vision. Don't let it be two visions. Don't use the chapter breaks as giving you an idea that there's going to be some kind of separation uh, because they're misplaced in my estimation. Because it's a, it's a continual vision. So what do we see? To him who overcomes shall, be, shall receive all of these things. And then what do we see? What's the very next thing that we see? The throne room. God's sovereign control over all of creation. Remember the picture? It's over all of creation. The four beings represent the created order. The, um, uh, the, the, yeah, the 24 elders represent the church. The sea of glass represents... The stillness of the chaos goes back to Genesis 3. Um, the rainbow represents new creation, and the, and the area that it's in represents the heavens, which is the created order. So what we see is God ruling on His throne in triune capacity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, over the, His created order. And then out of that, in a continuation of the vision, we see Christ, who appears in the midst of the throne, not beside it, not off in the middle, some off over to the side or below it or anything like that. Christ in the midst of the throne, which means he is sharing the throne. 
but he steps into the created order as the incarnation because it takes a created being or a man to redeem creation. That Hebrews clearly says that. This is why he became like his brothers. So God himself in the person of Jesus, in the, in, in, in the, in God himself, the second person of the Trinity, the Son, stepped into creation, became incarnate, still on the throne, and, uh, and conquers how? How does he conquer? By being slain. So the lion of the tribe of Judah is also a lamb. Lion and the lamb. Isaiah. Okay? So John hears the lion of the tribe of Judah has overcome, and he looks up and he sees a lamb. So the lion of the tribe of Judah overcomes by his sacrifice, and he appears eternally as a sacrifice lamb, right? Okay, so this lamb then... With seven eyes and seven, horn, uh, and seven horns, what do those represent? Let's talk about that real quick because we didn't get to it last time. That's the wrong one. Seven horns on the Lamb represent the fullness of His authority. It is a direct counter to the little horn that we're going to see on the beast that raises itself up against God. Okay, so the seven horns of Christ in chapter 5 refer to his authority, his sovereign authority, and it's complete and total. Seven. All right, now this goes back. This also goes forward to Revelation chapter 20, where he reigns. He must reign. So this is why I, I have a problem, and we'll get to this, but there's no millennial reign thousand years after he returns. The idea is that Christ stands before the throne now with seven horns. He is now in authority. He is now. Remember the statement is that Christ must reign until he puts all enemies under his feet. Not will reign after he puts all enemies under his feet. Yes? Uh, help me if you can, but isn't there somewhere else, or maybe this is some, in Revelation, or this is maybe something that you mentioned? that the horn was well known amongst the people as a symbol for a king or a ruling authority. It's a symbol, of, yes, it's a symbol of power. Throughout Scripture, it's the symbol, the, the horn. I will establish the horn of David. And it's not necessarily, I don't believe, a horn like off of a, a cow or a bull. It could be like a horn that's blown, like a trumpet, right? Yeah, like a shofar, perhaps. So... That's, that's a good point. So Jesus is shown before the throne room of God in his reigning capacity. We're not waiting for him to reign on the earth. He does so now. And we're going to see that when we get to chapter 6. Because every horseman and everything that happens from chapter 6 on is orchestrated and released and commanded into being by Christ. Remember what we said last week, that everything that you see going on in the world right now is part of God's redemptive plan and is under His control. And we tend to think sometimes when we look at the world that things are just going nuts out there and all, you know, God is playing catch-up all the time. God is actually allowing these things because they are part of what His eternal plan is. So when you see this war going on between the, 
Democrats and Republicans and the things going on in China and the, 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 you know, the, the Christians being killed in, in Africa and all of this stuff, God's plan. It's God's plan. And so we need to rest, and that's the point of this, we need to rest in the fact that God is sovereign, He's in control, and all of these things are happening in accordance to His will. That's easy to lose sight of. And that's the point. So what you have now is chapters 5, chapters 4 and 5, 5, you see the throne room. Of sovereign control and redemption. Okay? God is sovereignly under, He can sovereignly rules all things. And because He sovereignly rules over creation, He alone can redeem it. This is where Jesus steps in. Seven horns, seven eyes. What are the seven eyes? Anybody understand, think they understand what the seven eyes are? All seeing. A lot of people say omniscience. But there's a catch to this, the seven spirits that are sent into all the earth. Okay, that's a very key phrase to this. And I'm going to read through this real fast because I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this. Because I want to get into the, the introduction to the, the horseman. Um, there's a reference in Zechariah 3, 8 through 9 that reads this way. Listen, High Priest Joshua, you and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come. I am going to bring my servant the branch... See the stone I have set in front of you, Joshua. There are what? Seven eyes on the one stone. And I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord. I will remove the sins of the land in a single day. So the seven eyes compares back to that. It has to do with, number one, redemption. Okay? Along with the seven lamps mentioned later in Zechariah 4, the seven eyes are associated with all God's all-powerful spirit. Okay? And it's interesting, a lot of commentators say that the seven lamps are no longer in front of the throne, but are now seven eyes on the Lamb of God. Now, we don't have really a scriptural precedent to say that specifically, but I have a hard time believing that there are now seven eyes on Jesus and seven thrones. Uh, seven. It's just... The reason that they say that is because of eschatological and uh, salvific or, or um, soteriological reasons, salvation. That, that's the reason that they say that. Um, these convey not only the attribute of omniscience, but also sovereignty as seen in 2 Chronicles. All right, so here's the, what, what I think. I'll, I'll boil it down to what I think. I think this represents two things. And the phrase that uh, the uh, seven spirits of God sent into all the earth is a, is a key phrase. The first thing I think is that the seven torches or flames before the throne as the breath of life of creation in the previous chapter are now also the seven eyes of Christ and they, are, they give life. They represent the life-giving uh, life quality of the Spirit of God now given to Christ who is the life of the new creation. So, how did Adam become a, a, a living being? What does the word breath mean there? Spirit. It's rauch. It's a Hebrew word for spirit. God breathed his spirit into Adam and Adam became a, life, uh, a living being. Rauch. R, I think it's R-A-U-C-H. Huh? Ruach. Okay, R-U-A-C-H. 
Okay. What do we see in the Gospels where it says, where, where I believe it says, I don't remember exactly the, the text, I'm sorry. It says, if the same what that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you? Spirit. spirit. So it was, the, it was the Spirit of God that made Adam a living being. It was the Spirit of God that raised Christ from the dead. Christ now has the Spirit of God and He releases them, the life, the life of the new creation, and He releases that into the earth to bring life to the church, to those that are called his own. And the actual historical event of that happening is Acts chapter 2, at the day of Pentecost. Okay, so the seven eyes are significant in that Christ now holds the Spirit, which, which is significant because he said, if I don't go away, I cannot send to you the Comforter. So when Christ ascended, he now has with him the seven eyes of the Spirit, and they are sent into all the earth. Day of Pentecost. Okay, so Christ now has the life. John clearly says that. And to, to them came the life that was the light of men. So Jesus is the life of the new creation. It's contained within his, his being. Seven eyes. Okay, now... The point here is, is that, remember what I said, what was said to the seven churches, he who overcomes. So what you see is now a picture of, a depiction of, or a referent for your overcoming. Because now what we see is Christ who has overcome. So there's a direct tie to the picture of Christ in chapter 5, back to the churches, where it says, to him who overcomes... So here you go. There's a God who controls all of, all, is sovereignly under control of everything and the Lamb who has overcome already. So this, this is a picture of encouragement and this goes back to what is said to the churches. To him who overcomes, look, here's one who has overcome. So in him you too will overcome. Okay? So now we go from this into chapter 6, um, which is the seven seals. Now chronologically, this is important in the, in the Scripture because it, it sets a stage. It's not necessarily that this happens prior or whatever. I don't, putting timelines on things, things in Revelation is never a good idea. It's just not. So what we try to understand is things probably run concurrent. So the seven seals, um, as we will see, are released by the sovereign God for redemptive purposes and judgment purposes, two sides of the same coin. And we see that the events that are happening in the first four horsemen are not after what happened in the churches because what we're seeing here are the things represented or already depicted in what the seven churches are going through. So if you want to do chronology and you read the book like a single book, you're already in a jam. And this is where dispensationalists and historical premillennialists run into their problem. Because they think that at, 
that the 24 elders in this picture here represent the raptured church and that the seven, the, the seven seals open God's wrath upon an ungodly world that the church has been raptured out of. The problem is, is that the seven seals, especially the first four, depict what has actually already been said to the seven churches and the conditions that they're living under. So there's a backward-looking capacity to what's going on especially with the first four horsemen, and the fifth one actually, to the churches that, has already been spoke, that have already been spoken to. So this is going to have pertinence to us. So what you see here is this points to this, which points to this, which points back to this. See why we talk about recapitulation? Because there's this forward movement, but there's always a backward reach. Okay, so I said all that to say now we're going to move into chapter 6, which we're going to talk about, you know, one of Hollywood's favorite subjects, the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. How many dystopian movies have been made concerning the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse? And we're going to get into that. Okay, so everybody got this. We're, we're all caught up. We know where we're at. Jesus, God's sovereign control. Four horsemen reach back, he who overcomes. So it all makes a, 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 a very cool picture, right? Everybody good? All right, because I'm going to erase this. All right. Now we're going to get into the things as they are now. And the actual conflict that the stage has been set for. Because Jesus warns the church there will be a conflict. Let me now show you what that looks like. Okay? Let me set the stage with what you're going to encounter, and I'm going to show you. Um, let's see. Is this a save, save? Yeah. All right. So the first thing I want to say is something that we talked about. So I'm going to give you some, uh, some context to put this in an overview. The discussion of the scrolls being opened in its entirety, that all the seals must be broken at once for the scrolls' contents to be executed. So this is important because there's a big debate over what the scroll actually was. Was it a codex where you could open one seal and read a certain content of it, and then you get to the end of that content, and then you open the next seal and then read what it was? That's not what this is. This is an actual scroll. This is what they understood as being a document that was written on, in this case both sides, rolled up and sealed with seven seals. Now it would have been very difficult to read anything from the contents of the scroll by breaking one seal. Okay, and that's a significant statement because what we're going to see is that there's an overarching concept of the seven horse or the seven seals. They have an, an overarching, they create an overarching environment into which the seven bowls and the seven seals, or the seven trumpets and the seven um, bowls are released. And I'll show you that in a minute. Um, this means that we should consider the contents or events of chapter 6 through 17 as having been inaugurated already unless the event is clearly a consummating event. So what I mean by that is that Christ takes the scroll and he opens all the seals. And it's probably at an at once kind of thing. More like bing, 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 bing. All right? And each one of those scrolls Seals, as they're open, John sees something released. 
Now, it could have been really quick. It could have been over enough time for John to write down what he's saying. But the idea is that Jesus is opening the scroll so that the contents can be made manifest, okay? To assign the judgments of God in this section of text to a future fulfillment or to attempt some type of chronology is to draw dangerously close to the error of historicists and dispensationalists who attempt to assign historical events to the depictions. Let me tell you why I caution against this, because Jesus did. And he did it twice. Matthew 24, the disciples come to him and say, Matt, Lord, when will this happen? And what will be the signs of your coming? And Jesus completely takes them a different way. And what does he say? These things will happen, but the day and the hour, no man knows, not even the sun. Don't add dates and events to what's being said, because no one knows. Again, after his resurrection in Acts 1, the disciples come to him and they say, Will you now restore the kingdom? And what does Jesus say? It is not for you to know the times or the days that the Father has set by His own authority. What He did say, especially in Matthew 24, depicts trends and characteristics that are not intended to give us a gauge to determine our place in the timeline, but were symptoms of a fallen world in open conflict with the reign of Christ. That's what Jesus is saying. He wants to prepare you that we are in a war. He doesn't want you to try and figure out, oh, we must be right here just before the seven-year tribulation. Because once we begin to do that, we do exactly what Jesus said don't do. Okay, so that's why I caution people about, well, this follows this and this follows this and that must mean we were here in this. Don't do that. Okay? Um... We will, however, admit that there does seem to be, an imply, uh, to be implied a future aspect involving certain levels of these things. We have not yet seen the mountains flee or the, the islands flee and the mountains roll up. We have not yet seen the, mount, the, the sky burning up with a, with, and the firmament burning up with, a, with an unquenchable fire. We haven't seen that yet. So when the sixth seal talks about the end of the age, we naturally go, okay, that's not yet happened. So there are definite statements that are made throughout Revelation that we can understand by context specifically that these events have not yet ha- happened. Like, for example, have we seen Jesus return on with the saints and put an end to to, the, to, to the, the demonic world forces. We have not. So we know when that's being said that that's a future event. So what I'm trying to say is those are obvious. So unless it is obvious, we have to be careful not to assign a future consideration to it. All right? God's intention in Revelation is practical. To fortify the believers to endure... To embolden the advance of the gospel through evangelism and to awaken the church and cause her to be vigilant. Those are why we have revelation.
Sure. To fortify the believers to endure. He who perseveres to the end. That's the theme of Revelation. Number two, to embolden the advance of the gospel through evangelism. And we'll see that when we refer back to Matthew 24. And three, to awaken the church and cause her to be vigilant. What's one of the biggest issues right now with the church in America? It is asleep. There is a malaise about this ch of the church in America. We think that we're fine. We are Laodicea. We think that nothing is going on, that we're fine, that we're good. We equate our conditions spiritually with the kind of money that we have and the car that we drive and if, or the absence of, of conflict in our life. And we are right in the middle, in my opinion, we are right in the middle of Babylon's greatest throne in America. Because it's subtle. And Lucifer masquerades in America as an angel, as an angel of light, and we, a lot of the church buys into it. Oh yeah, after all, people are born homosexual. Oh yeah, after all. A child in the womb is not really a person. Oh yeah, after all. It's a sad day to me when one of some of our politicians who clearly don't follow the, the think, teachings of Christ start quoting Bible verses to support their pro-abortion, their pro-LGBTQ, their pro-whatever it is that they're talking about. And we had several instances of that happen this week. That's why we have to be vigilant. Because Lucifer quoted Eve the words of God. Lucifer quoted to Jesus the very scriptures. Okay? All right. Number two, the rule and reign of Christ. As depicted in the previous chapters, Christ has received all authority from the Father and now reigns over all of creation and the, kingdom, the kingdoms of the earth. The first four seals reveal how this authority extends even over the most chaotic and destructive world events and that suffering does not occur indiscriminately by chance or without purpose. Okay? That's what these first four seals show, so I'm giving you a segue into them. Number two, instead, these events are brought about and controlled by Christ for both redemptive and judicial purposes. In fact, the four horsemen are actually empowered by Him who has been given all authority. They were called forth by heaven. They were given the power they wield. And they were given the implements that depict their particular judgments by the throne room of God. Okay? Let me see. I just lost my place. The opening of the seals uh, coincides with Christ taking up His position of rule so that the events depicted by the seals will take place immediately and continue simultaneously until the Lord's return. And this is described in the last chapter of Revelation. But it's depicted specifically by the sixth seal. Did I run off and leave you behind? <laughs> I saw you grinning at me. 
The, the first five seals depict the condition of the world, and they show, because we'll see that they're called forth by the four beings, and, they, and their, their direct relation back to Zechariah, that they are global, and they will continue throughout the church age. That's why after the fifth seal, we see the sixth seal, which is the end of all things. And there was an earthquake, and, and that is, is consummate throughout, scripture, throughout Revelation of the end of the new creation and the, the, the inauguration of the new. So that the sixth seal is positioned in such, a position, in such a way as to demonstrate that the seals that come before it continue until the end. Okay? Uh, Herman Hoskema says it, uh, that the seven seals must be considered as symbolizing the history of the present dispensation, which is the church age, from its main aspect, the chief currents... Um, from its main aspects, which are the chief currents of events as they all flow to one great goal of all history, the perfection of the glorious kingdom of God in Christ. So everything that we're reading now must be seen in that projection, in that trajectory, that God is going to establish His throne and His rule on the earth. He is redeeming mankind, and the first thing that He does in redemption after Christ's ascension is to release the horsemen. Seems contradictory, but that's the plan of God. All the events of history, all the factors and agencies which combine to make history must be conducive to that one great purpose. And any event in the, in the world's history, therefore any event in world's history possesses its own particular significance for the coming of the kingdom. Do you guys look at the world events as having significance for God establishing His kingdom on the earth? It's hard to do that. It's hard to keep that in mind. Especially with what we see as chaos. Remember, the enemy is intending on returning creation back to chaos. Uncreation. But it's really exciting to do that. To look at world events through the lens of God establishing his kingdom on the earth. Mm -hmm. Because then it puts everything in the right perspective. It takes away all the fear. It, it takes you out of the whole, you know, gutter of political, you know, argument. And you see things as, as God wants us to see them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in his plan. Yeah. And so, and so what Rick just said is actually the purpose of Revelation. It's actually what God gave us through Christ Jesus, what, what he gave revelation for, is exactly what Rick said. To keep us focused, to keep us on the right track, to keep us from fearing the things that we see around us, and to keep us excited in knowing that God is working out his plan of salvation on the earth. The moment that we do exactly what Peter did, what did Peter do when he was walking on the water? What did he do? He took his eyes off Jesus and he looked at the waves and what happened? He sinks. What happens to us when we take our eyes off of God's eternal plan going on around us and we begin to look at the, oh my gosh, Trump's up for impeachment. Oh my gosh, what's going on over here? Oh my gosh, they're killing babies by mass numbers. Oh my gosh, they're teaching these in the schools now. Oh my gosh, they just passed this law. What happens? And pretty soon we come to church and we're like this. 
and we're barely able to keep our breath, right? No, we don't. I'm not saying this church. It's easy. Listen, it's easy to do. Because we gather as a church once a week. And we're exposed to the things of the world without cessation. That's why Paul clearly said, do not, or the, was it Hebrews who said that? Do not forsake the gathering together of yourself, of the brethren. Don't forsake getting together. Why? Because in this group, in this section, uh, this, this group of people right here, we have like-minded people that can say, look, don't lose sight. Let me give you a hand up. I know that you've been creamed by the world this week. Let me, let me help you up. When I'm strong, I can help you when you're weak. When I'm weak, you help me when I'm strong. That's why the church is so important. All right? The opening scroll. As we have previously stated, the breaking of the seals is a prelude to the opening of the scroll. The seals do not present stages in the opening of the scroll, but is only preliminary to it. So in my estimation, especially the four horsemen and the fifth seal demonstrate the conditions of the world into which the rest of Revelation must be read. Okay? Um, Mounts, uh, in his commentary, states uh, in support of this, the scroll itself cannot be opened until all seven seals are removed. To that extent, the sovereign purpose of God contained within the scroll cannot be implemented until the seventh seal is broken. Nevertheless, as each seal is broken, we are introduced to a preliminary judgment representing forces through which the judicial and salvific purposes of God can be carried out. All right? So what we're seeing here is a prelude. The scroll itself contains two complementary things. The establishment of the kingdom of God and the gathering of the saints into that kingdom, point one. Point two, the judgment of God upon the dragon and his false kingdom that have opposed God and oppressed and persecuted his people, point two. Two sides, judgment on the enemy, redemption of the saints. All right, these two are integral to redemption. Uh, that these two are integral to redemption is seen in what? Where do we see this very thing happening? Now, if I give you this, you'll know exactly where. The Revelation is called the second exodus. So where do we see this? We see it in the exodus. What happened? The, the Israelites were in Egypt. God poured out His wrath on the Egyptian system or the city of man that opposed His church that opposed his people or oppressed his people, right? While at the same time safeguarding them and leading them out of. So we see two things happening at the same time. God's judgment on the enemies that oppose the church and God's redemption of that church. Okay? All right, the first four seals. Let's just get into it. And the church age. Revelation 6, 1-8 describes the destructive forces loosed upon the world immediately upon and as a result of Christ's victorious death, resurrection, and ascension. Okay? This gives the exhortation to persevere contained in the seven letters more context 
since the sufferings released by the seals had already begun prior to the time John wrote the message to the churches. What I'm saying this then is that there's this backward look. We see what's going on in the churches. John mentions it in the seven letters. And then what, what we see in the first four seals being broken are the conditions that the seven churches are living under. Okay? This judgment released by the four, uh, four seals are the same prophesied by in Ezekiel chapter 14 and by Jesus in Matthew 24. Since in both of these places the judgments occur concurrently instead of chronologically, the same must be true here. And according to the glorified saints' depiction upon the earth in the fifth seal, uh, I'm sorry, the glorified saints depicted upon the opening of the fifth seal, we are probably to understand that because of the placement and inclusion here as having suffered and died under all four judgments. So the fifth seal shows the saints that have died as a persecution or as a result of the first four horsemen, which also as a whole goes back to the conditions that, that the churches, the, first, the seven churches found themselves in. Are we following so far? Okay. So let's talk about the Old Testament reference to the four horsemen. There are many, and these are important. And I want us to understand them. This is not something that's new. This is not something that John just saw for the first time. This is why I say that you have to read Revelation as having, imp as having impact through, uh, or, or as having import throughout the whole of Scripture. Because a lot of what Scripture says is now being manifested in Revelation. And what we see with the first four horsemen are referenced back to Zechariah 6, 1 through 8. First, a lot of people refer it back also to Zechariah 1. The horse colors are a bit different, but the, the symbol of horses are used again. And in both places, they're sent throughout the world. But Zechariah 6 is very specific. Four chariots carrying spirits of heaven are drawn by horses that are almost identical in color to the ones in the first four seals. This is Zechariah 6. They come from what? How many of you are familiar with this passage? What do the four chariots ride forth between? Two mountains of bronze. What does bronze always apocalyptically a symbol of judgment? So that the four horsemen in Zechariah ride out from between two mountains of bronze show them to be God's execution of judgment. The interesting thing is also that they go where? To the four corners of the earth, or the four corners of the compass. It's a global judgment. That's important. All right? Because what we're going to see when the horsemen are released is that they are each one called forth by who? Who calls forth each one of the horsemen in Revelation? No, no, no. The living creatures. What do the living creatures represent? The created order. So the four living creatures call forth the four judgments and they are 
they represent the global, the globality, if you want to use that word, of the judgments being depicted, which goes back to Zechariah chapter 6, where the four horsemen are called through the bronze mountains and are sent to the four compasses, or the four points of the compass. Okay? So there's a strong parallel there. Yeah. All right. Ezekiel 14, 12 through 23. Ezekiel 14.21 is actually quoted in Revelation 6.8 where it functions in both places as a general summary of the previous four judgments released on the earth. Okay, so um, we'll talk about that in a little bit. In Ezekiel, these are called my or God's four uh, dreadful judgments. And they are sword, famine, wild beasts, and plagues or death. And, they're intent, and they are intended to punish the unbelieving majority in Israel because of their idolatry, while at the same time purifying the remnant. All right. The same dual purpose is likely intended, therefore, in the first four seals of Revelation 6, but for the new Israel or the church. Um, however, it is clear in Revelation that the sphere of judgments extends beyond the church to, its, to the entire world as seen back by the Zechariah passage. Okay, So you see how they're all tying together? All right, and then the last reference is Leviticus 26, 18 through 28. It's usually agreed upon that the Ezekiel passage is a further development of the four judgments found in Leviticus. Now, there are four judgments in Leviticus, and each judgment has seven points under it. Okay? Here God warns Israel in the wilderness of how He would punish them if they descended into idolatry. In these, all four of Revelation's judgments are found. In Leviticus passage, all four of the judgments in Revelation are found. War, famine, conquest, and death. Some commentators believe that this passage is the foreshadowing of the four series of seven judgments in Revelation. So some believe that the whole of Revelation and all of its depictions and all of its judgments actually goes back to this Leviticus passage. All right? Now, I'm going to close with this. I'm going to draw a parallel between seals, trumpets, and bowls. And I want to do this before we get into it because I want us to understand that the seals, especially the the first five, depict a shell into which the trumpets and the bowls are released. Okay? So I'm going to kind of go fast. So what we have is the seals... Um, the seals provide an overview like this into which trumpets, bowls, whoops, are loosed. Okay? And that the trumpets and bowls are able to inflict the wrath and the things that we read because of the environment that the seals create, which is an antichrist environment or the city of man. Okay? 
All right. The structure of the seals. The first four seals release the horsemen who are granted the power to establish upon the earth the social, political structure that characterized the city of man. Conquest, war, famine, death, or the lack of peace. Now I'm going to contradict what most people understand the four horses to be, especially the second one. Because everybody says, well, the second one, the red horse, is, is war. It is not. It is not depicted as war. It is depicted of taking peace from the earth. Strife. And that can mean all kinds of things. But what it does specifically say that it, it results in is that people kill one another. And that is a general statement that might include war, but it's certainly more broad. Okay. The fifth seal intended to instill hope is intended to instill hope and encouragement. It reveals that the blessed state it reveals the blessed state of those believers who are killed or otherwise die uh, within and because of the antichrist system. Okay? So the fifth seal, so the four horsemen of the apocalypse create the environment or the culture of the city of man. The fifth seal is for all the people that die because of this who are in Christ shows the state of those believers. And what are they? They are beneath the altar of the Lord crying out, how long? And the Lord says, until your number is fulfilled and they're given a white robe. Okay? So these are the people that die in the church age that are believers. So there's a connection there, right? The sixth seal depicts the destruction of fallen creation and the end of the age, which, as we will see, indicates the first five seals will continue until the end of the age, as we've said. And the seventh seal is, in effect, the release of the seven trumpets to which the seven bowls have a clear parallel. Okay, so we see six seals that depict the structure, uh, the five seals that depict the structure of the world. The sixth seal shows the end of creation, which means that the first five seals will continue until the end. And then, the, interestingly enough, and this is the only place where it does it, because the seventh trumpet and the seventh bowl show the end of creation, but the sixth bowl, uh, the seventh uh, seal releases the, the trumpets. So the seventh seal releases the judgment on this. Okay? Trumpets and bowls. Trumpets. The first four have to do with judgment upon the world as it is in its entirety. Number four, dry land, sea, fresh water, and air, and sky. Trumpet five is a judgment directed at the citizens of the Antichrist system and, make use, and, and it makes use of demonic agents. The sixth seal has to do with the drying up of the Euphrates to allow for the final conflict. And the seventh seal is the, uh, is the seal that brings about the destruction. I'm sorry. The seventh trumpet uh, is, the, is that which brings about the destruction of fallen creation and the inauguration of the new. Bowls. Much the same picture. One through five, uh, one in five are plagues directed at the citizens of the Antichrist system. Bowls 2, 3, and 4 are plagues that affect the created order, sea, fresh water, and heavenly bodies. 
The sixth bowl has to do with the drying up of the Euphrates, exactly what the sixth trumpet is in order for the final conflict. And the seventh bowl is what? The end of the created, the end of the fallen creation and the beginning of the new creation, just like the seventh trumpet is, which goes back to the sixth seal. So they all interconnect. And the reason that I took the time to do that is because I do not want you reading these as chronological. Because if you do, you take away what is going on in the world. And you push it off into some future hope, future timeline, where what's going on in the world is lessened and it adds to the malaise of the church. Does that make sense? So, I'll leave you with this because i got to stop. Five seals. Create the world order into which God's judgment is poured through the seven trumpets and the seven bowls. The entirety of which continues on until the sixth seal, the seventh trumpet, and the seventh bowl, which is the end of current creation and the beginning of the new creation. All right? That is represented in Revelation 20, 21, and 22. Also 19, when we see the fall of Babylon. Okay? So next week we're going to start with Horseman number one, which many people believe to be either Christ or the gospel, which I will demonstrate is neither. Okay? <laughs> All right. Father, we are grateful because you have given us such encouragement and such hope. And despite what we see in the world around us, we know that you are sovereignly in control and that these things that we see going on around us have been released by your Son in order to accomplish the eternal purposes of the Godhead. I pray for these people that are within the sound of my voice, that they will keep in mind that the things that they go through, the things that they see in the world, the things that are, they're experiencing right now, are put into context of God's eternal purpose, God's eternal plan, and they are sovereignly overseen by an eternal God. In Jesus' name. Amen.